before I get into the sermon today, what I, what I need to do to transition us is say that that jubilant song, that spirit uncaged, that sense of just leaping and darting in joy, that is a part of life. We know that piece of life. We have those moments when we look around and it is just sort of miracle after miracle and our life is really, we just land in that place of deep gratitude and appreciation. That is, that is where that song certainly puts me. I think it puts us. That's why we were in silence, just sort of soaking that in, that mm. So that's one place of life, the joy and that, that jubilant song. And the other place in life is that place of hardship and despair and darkness. So I want you now to hold on, to hold on to what we just heard, to hold on to that joy, to hold on to that spirit uncaged, because we're going to come back there. But hold on to that right now, because despite that joyful music, I want to start us today in a hard place. I want to start in a challenging place. And here's, here's what I want to start with this morning. I want to tell you that hell is real. Hell is real. I know as a faith community, we say we don't believe in hell. We haven't believed in hell for 153 years. That's how long we've been together as a church. As universalists, we say there is no hell at the end of it all. God reconciles everyone and everything back to God's self. There is no hell. But I'm telling you this morning, hell is real. Many of us have been there. Some of you know this because you have been there. And let me explain. Let me tell you my experience and a story that goes with it. A story that's hard for me to share. A story that will touch you in deep places, remind you of your own losses and stories. It is a painful story. A heart-opening story. It's a story that has shaped me, fundamentally shaped me as a human being, as a minister, as a religious person. So travel with me this morning. Travel with me in your mind's eye six years ago. Let's go back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's May. It's springtime of 2006. And the city is abloom with pink and white and red azaleas. It's gorgeous. And in the midst of all of that beauty, something terrible happens. The three-year-old daughter of my friend and mentor, the senior minister of All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa. His three-year-old daughter dies completely unexpectedly. None of us, none of us saw this coming. The day before she died, she was sick. She was sick with the flu. I remember seeing her that evening. Her mom was holding her. She was leaning against her mom and her mom's shoulder, and she looked like any child does when they have the flu, any of us when we have the flu. Tired, a little bit kind of droopy, a little punky, but just the regular flu. She went to bed that night, still not feeling well, and during the night with almost No warning, this little three-year-old girl died between her parents in their bed. This was a totally random thing. It was unimaginable. It was devastating. It It is still impossible to comprehend. This is not how the world is supposed to work. This is not what happens to three-year-old 
girls. She had a cold. She had this common virus, something I get, we get. It happens. Our kids get it. And this time, for some reason, this one in a million fluke of a thing, this virus attacked her heart. It attacked her heart, and she stopped breathing, and she died. Her beautiful, her name was Sienna, her beautiful light, her laughter, her joy went out. There were good friends from the church that came to Juliana and my house that next morning. They knocked on the door. We knew them. They were leaders in the church. They knocked on our door after her death, and they came in, and they shared the news with us. And I will tell you, we wept. We fell on the couch, and we wept, and we cried, and we couldn't make sense of what had happened. We loved this little girl. We had babysat this little girl. We had watched her grow up. We had just celebrated her birthday party. She was like our daughter. She was like a daughter of the church. We, we, all of us felt like we had lost a child that day. And later that afternoon and in the many days to come, my wife and I, Juliana and I and others, we sat with this family, my friend, and we held them in their grief. We sat with them and we cried. We witnessed to their pain. We shared our pain. And it was clear to me. It was clear to me in those moments, in those days, hell is real. It's not some place we go after we die, if we've been bad, or if we haven't accepted Jesus. In a way I have never known before, I saw hell as something real. Not fire and a devil with a pitchfork, Instead, hell was the searing pain of loss, of the future this family had imagined, that future just dissolving in a minute. And I know many of you have been in hell. Maybe you are right now in hell, that place of despair and isolation. You know that place. Hell is real. I'll tell you what else I learned in those days around her death. I learned that there is a love in the world that is strong enough to go into hell. There is a love in the world that is strong enough to go into hell. There was a love that was a witness to this family and their grief. There was a love, this love like a great ocean. That's why I use this metaphor so often, because there was this love like an ocean that held this family and did not let them go. This love couldn't undo what had happened. It couldn't bring this little girl back to life. But this love was strong enough to go into hell in the form of those hands and those words, and in the hearts of the members of that congregation. That love was incarnated in those people of the church, and they walked into hell unafraid. And they would not leave. I imagine I'm speaking to some of you now, especially, especially those of you who have lost a child. 
but also those of you who have lost a loved one who have struggled into a pit of despair, descended into that place of isolation and that sense that there is no hope, there is no light. There are hundreds of different hells we can be in. But here's what you have told me. Here's what I experienced in that moment. Here's what I know to be true, even when we're in that place of hell, that there is a way love gets in. Love finds a way to be present. Love witnesses the grief, the despair, the isolation. Love finds a way in. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. I don't understand how it works, but love finds a way in. And that experience from six years ago shaped who I am and what I believe. I know now in my bones, in the depth of who I am, I know in my bones that though we will walk, we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, love walks with us. Love walks with us. Love is in that valley with us. Love is up on the hillsides with lights and song and candles and spotlights saying you are not alone in this valley. You are not alone. That church in Tulsa, that church in Tulsa filled with love's people was an indispensable faith community. That church literally saved my friend and his family's lives. They saved him. And the church learned something about caring for one another. They learned about their capacity and their responsibility to care for one another. It wasn't a minister that cared for my friend. He was the minister. It was the people in the church. It was love's people, the people of that faith community who held him, who made, created an ocean that could carry him and his family. They took care of him and one another together. That's one of the things that makes a church, that makes any faith community indispensable. It makes it indispensable because we know when we're on a life-changing journey, and friends, we are all on life-changing journeys all the time. When we're on that life-changing journey and we get the diagnosis or descend into grief or struggle with addiction or begin again, we hit the bottom and we start again. An indispensable faith community says you are not walking alone. There are others who will walk with you on this journey. I think of Rose Day, a member of this church whose life we celebrated last Saturday in a memorial service here. Rose was a member of our, one of our small groups. And that group, while she was in that group, that group wrapped their arms around her and her husband, Michael, as the two of them lived with her cancer diagnosis. I think about those of you in this space those of you living with an illness or struggling some way, and this church is doing its best. The people, us, are doing our best to hold you, to wrap our arms around you. The indispensable church walks with you, even, even into the depths of hell. In a world that so often feels indifferent, this is life-saving. This is life-saving in our small groups, in the choir, and you take care of each other, choir, in countless other ways and places, in our friendship groups that the Association of Universalist Women has, in so many ways, 
we literally save each other's lives. We are responsible for and indispensable to one another. I know this to be true because you have told me. I have seen it. I have been witness to your loving arms holding one another. There is a power in that. There is a power in that. But the peace I wrestle with, the peace that stirs in my soul, the peace that won't let go of me right now is this. This is what keeps me up at night. We have something amazing here, this power of being there for one another and getting better and better at that. But here's what keeps me up. When I look out on you Sunday after Sunday and I see you in this space and I see there is less and less room in this space. If you come in at the, when the service starts, you may not even see a place to, to sit. Remember, we have 600 people in worship on Sundays and hundreds of children and youth in our program. I worry that there isn't space, that there isn't room. We are growing We are growing as a faith community. We are growing because in a world that deadens and numbs the soul and ignores the soul, we are a community that is committed to growing the soul, committed to being love's people in the world. We are growing because we have a huge tent, theological tent, under which all kinds of people can gather, atheists and agnostics and Christians and Buddhists and Jews, anybody who wants to be who is called to be, loves people in the world. Anyone who wants to make that love real in the world is welcome here, and people are hungry for that. And so we are growing, but we're running out of space. We're running out of room. Literally, there aren't that many seats left. And if we are going to be responsive to those who hunger for such a faith, if we are going to be indispensable to more than just ourselves. We have an obligation to make room in our worship services, in our classrooms. We have a responsibility to ask ourselves, what would love's people do? And I'll tell you, when we're clear, when we're clear that we're called to help love's vision of care and compassion, to help that vision take root in the world here and then widening circles out into the community, We'll do almost anything because we know we are called to heal and hold one another and the world as best we can. So on a very practical level, this means we'll probably add a third worship service next fall. This means that we will want your input on that service and what it looks like. This means there'll be more space for people to join us. If we truly want to be indispensable, we will engage with the surrounding community in deeper and more intentional ways. In fact, this means we will wrap our arms around the community. This community right here where we are. We are a church in a particular place, in a particular time, and there is a community around us. What would it mean to wrap our arms around that community and here? What are the hells that exist here to know our neighbors and the nonprofits and the businesses in this area and discover how the church might have a role in shaping our shared lives. What I'm saying is this. We are responsible for the people who are here, for the people who are yet to come, and to those people in the community who will never step foot in this place, but are members of our community. And what keeps me up at night is this. 
I don't question how indispensable we are to one another. You tell me that. I hear that all the time. But what keeps me up is this. I'm not sure that we are really indispensable in the community. My fear is that if First Universalist disappeared tomorrow, the neighbors in a half-mile circle around the church would say something like this. Hmm. I think there used to be a church there. I'm not sure. Well, I guess there must have been because no one's parking in my parking spot on Sunday mornings anymore. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So I guess there was a church there, but I don't really know what they were about or what they were doing. Now, I love to imagine a different response. That if we disappeared tomorrow, someone would say something like this. The neighbors in the community might say something like this. They might say, that church was engaged in this neighborhood. They hosted block parties. They had cookouts. They had music in their parking lot. They had community gatherings. They helped facilitate really important conversations in this neighborhood. They had partnerships with lots of organizations. That church, they helped rebuild homes in the neighborhood. And they had a great partnership with Habitat for Humanity, too. Oh, that church, their community garden, that was amazing. That brought people together in unbelievable ways. And that church, they really developed a ministry. They reached out to those struggling with addiction and recovery and provided spiritual resources and support for them. Oh, yeah. At church, I remember, when there was violence in the community, they would show up. They would have a vigil. They would be witnesses for peace. And man, man, that after-school program that church started for kids, what a gift to the community that was. What a gift that was. You get the picture. I'm just dreaming. I'm just dreaming here. And granted, we are doing a chunk of this. But I'm not sure that we're truly indispensable to the community. And honestly, I think a piece of that might be going out into the community and talking to our neighbors and asking them, what's going on out here? What, what hells do you see out here? What are people struggling with? Where are people hungry or challenged by something? How can we, what, what is calling on us? What role do we have in this community? And if you're interested in being a part of that, I invite you to sign up downstairs at our information center because I want to get to know our neighbors and I want some of you to join me in that. And as I've really been thinking about this, really thinking about this a lot, it seems that if we are going to really be an indispensable church, if we're really going to be love's people, creating the beloved community, then we must engage in racial justice work so that many of us here, and I'm talking about me right now as a, as a white guy, so many of us here can understand our white privilege and the limits and blinders that puts on us and our faith community. We must open our hearts and minds to this work and be willing to be changed by what we discover, be willing to worship in a different way, at a different service, or whatever it might be. In short, here's what I'm pointing to. We'll do whatever it takes to be indispensable inside these walls and outside these walls because so many in our world long to hear the message, the good news, that they are loved. That they are loved, period. Not they are loved if, not they are loved when, that they are loved. So many long to know that they are not alone in whatever hell they are in. 
So many long to know that others, other people will walk and work and pray and love and stand with them no matter what. No matter what. So friends, hell is real. But so is love. And hell cannot stop love. This means that the indispensable church will wrap its loving arms around all people, those who are here and those who are in the community. The indispensable church will remind all of us that we are not alone and that working together, side by side, we are called to be love's people in the world. We are called to be love's people in the world. The indispensable church loves people in the world. May it be so. And amen.